Well, we're in a series, a short series, looking at some passages on suffering in the book of 2 Corinthians. Would you turn there to 2 Corinthians? As we saw last week from chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says there that we have the treasure of the gospel in these clay pots of human existence. All Christians should consider themselves like jars of clay, he said. That is common. They should consider themselves fragile. They should know themselves to be earthen. And they should know, like jars of clay, they're easily discarded by the world. A perfect example of that is the poverty and persecution that the Jerusalem church was facing at the time Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. That's really the reason for Paul writing chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, where we are today, the suffering of the Jerusalem church. These two chapters make up a rather lengthy appeal from Paul to the Corinthian church to financially give in order to help alleviate the suffering of the Jerusalem saints. The Jerusalem saints were suffering physically and in poverty and in persecution And Paul calls on the Corinthian church, along with other churches, to help relieve their suffering. To relieve their suffering. He calls it a collection. He's taking up a collection. In fact, this collection was apparently a major, multi-year project that the, the Apostle Paul headed up. When we think of the Apostle Paul, we might think of Paul the great apostle, or Paul the preacher, the evangelist, We might think of Paul the theologian or Paul the eloquent epistle writer. Those are all true, but Paul was also a fundraiser. A lot of his letters were fundraisers. And here, especially in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's about fundraising. This one for a specific need, not just general apostolic missionary work, but for the saints in Jerusalem. Why them? Why Jerusalem? Weren't there other poor Christians around at that time? Well, we don't know why the the saints at Jerusalem were the focal point of Paul's fundraising. We know some things about what was going on. We know in Acts chapter 11, for instance, that there was a severe famine in Jerusalem in the mid-40s A.D. We also know, of course, that it was a very big church. It's where the 3,000 were added in one day and then 5,000 a little bit later and We know from Acts chapter 6 that they had a lot of widows. That would mean a lot of need in caring for those widows in that day. We also know from Acts chapter 11 and 12, right around there, that persecution was growing at the time in Jerusalem especially. And persecution there would have meant martyrdom for some, imprisonment for some, but for the majority it would have meant economic persecution. It would have meant that Christians were being excluded from the avenues of trade, of buying and selling in the Roman world. So you can understand how the Jerusalem church might have been going through unusual poverty and persecution. Paul had written the Corinthian church before about this need in Jerusalem. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul first asked the Corinthians to support this need. There he said, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. 
On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. But since Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, you'll remember if you've been with us in recent weeks, since Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there was a falling out between Paul and the Corinthian church. The Corinthians had embraced imposter apostles, and they had turned their back on their spiritual father and true apostle, Paul. So Paul wrote a severe letter, he called it. He wrote a letter of rebuke that isn't in our Bibles. It happened between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And it worked. The letter worked. The Corinthians repented. By God's grace, they turned back to not only the Lord and the word and the truth, but turned back to Paul, their spiritual father and true apostle. And so Paul wrote 2 Corinthians in part to celebrate their repentance and to reaffirm their restoration. So maybe it's on your same page if you're looking at 2 Corinthians 8. In chapter 7, verse 9, Paul talked about the repentance. He said, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. He wrote 2 Corinthians to celebrate the repentance, but he also wrote 2 Corinthians to appeal to them to resume their commitment to the Jerusalem collection for the suffering saints there in Jerusalem. And really what he's saying here is that their resuming of giving of funds for the suffering saints in Jerusalem will demonstrate their restored fellowship with the apostle, but will also demonstrate the genuineness of their salvation. And it will also demonstrate the unity of the church. Think about it. Christians in Jerusalem are predominantly Jewish. Christians in Corinth are predominantly Gentile. The Gentile support of poor Jews in Jerusalem Well, it's just further proof of the removal of the wall that divides Jew and Gentile in Christ. It's about the unity of the church. Now let's read a portion from chapter 8, and then we'll read another portion from chapter 9 to get a feel for these chapters. Chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now skip to chapter 9, verse 1. We'll read a section there. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you, for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We'll stop there. This is perhaps the Bible's most concentrated and thorough teaching on financial giving, or what we sometimes call stewardship. But it's not a passage about regular, routine, local church giving, like most of us think about when we think of giving, kingdom giving, giving to the Lord, giving to the church. This was a special offering for a specific need. It wasn't about the church's routine needs. It wasn't um, the regular financial support of the church's pastors. Those things are in the Bible, too. But this is a passage on the relief of poverty in a specific city for suffering saints. So 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is less like our regular giving to our church budget and or church planting. And it's more like those occasions when we come before you because there's something unusual. An emergency has happened. So when Katrina hit the U.S., we... We raised support for that, right? We sought to meet that need. When, when Haiti happened, the earthquake in Haiti, we raised money for that and sought to, to meet certain needs with it. Sort of like that. So let's all just breathe a sigh of relief here. This passage is about special offerings, not regular giving. This passage is about special offerings, and we have no plans today to bring before you a special offering. It's almost a shame. It's almost a shame that, that there isn't this big need right now and we could use this passage as the, the springboard into a big collective giving at the end of this service. No, we can all breathe a sigh of relief because this passage is about special giving and we're not going to do any special collection today. <laughs> not so fast. Though this passage is about a special offering to help impoverished and persecuted saints, Paul unpacks a whole theology of giving here. 
A whole theology of financial stewardship here. And almost everything he says in these chapters is applicable to almost any kind of kingdom giving. Whether it's for poverty, whether it's for a special need, or whether it's for the regular support of a local church and the practical needs of a church. Which in our day today, in our culture and with a church our size, relates to things like buildings. It'd be hard to be a church this size without a building, especially you know during monsoon or during a windy season or something like that, not to mention the cold. It relates to our budget, we could say. It does. It gives us a theology of those numbers you see in your bulletin week after week. We can categorize what Paul teaches us about giving here into six parts. The first, giving is privilege. Paul teaches us that giving is privilege. And he uses the Macedonian churches as extraordinary examples of people who know that giving is pure privilege. They give sacrificially and in a joy-filled sort of way. When he says the Macedonian churches, he's referring to Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Macedonia was the province of those cities. And these churches were going through their own, you see verse 2, their own severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. And yet they wanted to give to relieve suffering in Jerusalem. They even begged Paul for the opportunity. He says they were, verse 4, begging us earnestly to take part in the relief of the saints. Rather than Paul doing the begging, they're doing the begging. Normally we think of fundraisers as the ones who do the begging. And the rest of the people slowly get out a wallet and give what they uh, can live with. But here the poor givers are the ones doing the begging. And Paul is the one who's reluctant to let them give because of their affliction and poverty. Eventually he's talked into it though. They insist, please let us in on this. They insist, do not keep us from this blessing. Their generosity flowed out of two things, really. In verse 2, it flowed out of an abundance of joy, overflowing joy. Not overflowing money, but overflowing joy. And secondly, their generosity flowed out of obedience to the Lord. You see, in verse 5, it says, they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves to the Lord. We sometimes call this consecration. Giving ourselves to the Lord. We do that progressively. We do it more and more. Oh, we wish it was all at once, but we're slow and, and we're sinful. And, and so it's, it's slow going. But here, they gave themselves to the Lord. And, and their sacrificial giving flowed out of that. It's essential to understand that, that their consecration to the Lord was the basis for how they viewed money and giving and needs in the church. Kent Hughes puts it like this. When we know that our lives are not our own, neither will we think that our possessions are our own. It's easier to surrender part when we've already given the whole. You see? 
They gave themselves, their whole beings, their dreams, their everything to the Lord. Money, of course, it goes to the Lord and to his people and to needs. But you add it all up and it's kind of funny math, isn't it? Basically, Paul says here, affliction plus extreme poverty plus abundant joy plus consecration to God equals overflowing wealth of generosity. That math doesn't seem to add up. We don't seem to think like that. But they did, and Paul did too. They gave, he says in verse 3, according to their means and beyond their means. Which doesn't mean that they gave more than they had, uh, that they somehow put their giving on their credit card, their first century credit card. No, of course not. It, it, what it means is that they gave far more than what was just reasonable or safe. It was sacrifice. It was sacrifice. It hurt. It pinched. They gave sacrificially. They gave radically, we could say. But they also gave freely and willingly, not under pressure, not under guilt. In fact, just the opposite. They were talking Paul into it. They gave joyfully, worshipfully, and lovingly in these verses. It was pure privilege for them. We all know the difference between have to kind of things and get to kind of things, right? You might have to clean out the garage this afternoon, but you get to eat a burrito this afternoon. There's a big difference, right? There's the have to of cleaning the house before company comes over, and there's a get to of making love to your wife that night, right? Well, the Macedonians were get to kind of givers. It was all privilege. And Paul celebrated their generosity. He talked about it. He commended it publicly. I want to do the same today. Today I want to celebrate a growth of generosity at Desert Springs Church. Most of you have a bulletin with you. Open it up. Look at that center panel there at the bottom, those numbers that are there. We're drawing near to the end of a, a fiscal year. And we have $100,000 more than, uh, than we plan to have. That's amazing. That's am praise God for that. Thank you for that. And by the way, that's happening while our missions giving has doubled over the last couple of years. It's doubled. And that's while we have planted a church in Rio Rancho where we not only help fund that church while it's in its infancy stage, but we also lost 40 good adults, probably good givers, I don't know, but I, I suppose good givers left and went there, and you'd expect that you'd have less coming in after something like that. And we've gone from good to great. We've gone from strong to stronger by God's grace. We're thankful for it. Now, I can't speak to everyone in this room individually. That's a blanket commendation that needs to be said and should be said. But, but I don't know who gives what. And I know that there are big differences among us, right? Some give more and some give more or less sacrificially. Some don't give at all. So only you know as I'm, as I'm celebrating this giving, this growth in giving at Desert Springs Church, only you know whether that's in part because of you you're growing in it. You're growing in giving and sacrifice and generosity and joy. Or maybe as you're hearing this, you know it's in spite of you. If you're growing in 
sacrifice and giving, then rejoice with me and celebrate this. Praise God for others. And, and if you're here hearing that and it's in spite of you, please don't hear a guilt trip here because you'd miss the point of Paul's point in using the Macedonians here. You see, if you're a Christian, and especially if you're a member at Desert Springs Church, hear the commendation of joyful, sacrificial giving that others around you are enjoying in the Macedonians demonstrated so beautifully and powerfully. And jump in, figure a way to jump in, jump in, and pray for God's help. Secondly, Paul tells us that giving is proof. It's proof. It's proof in verses 6 through 9. In this whole section here, several times, he talks about giving being proof, get this, of genuine salvation. Oh, not, not foolproof proof, but he uses the word proof. In verse 24, he uses the, it gives proof, he says. But notice also how he connects giving and salvation by calling the gift, the financial gift, he calls it grace. He calls it grace. Their giving, he says, verse 6, is an act of grace. He says in verse 7, as you excel in everything, so excel also in this act of grace. That's what the Macedonians were doing. They were taking part in this act of grace, verse 1. You'd think Paul, who loves grace and loves to unpack the beautiful theology of grace, would be protective of this word. That he wouldn't call money grace. He wouldn't call a financial gift grace. But no, he's reminding them and us that, that God's grace is a gift that God so loved that he gave, that grace is free, is undeserved. And so whenever we freely give to others, it is grace-like, it is gospel-like. It's a small imitation of what Jesus did for us. You see verse 9? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that grace? What is that gospel? Here it is. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The second person of the Trinity left his father's intimate presence in heaven. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. In that sense, he took on poverty. He took on literal poverty as well. He said he had no place to lay his head. He was homeless. The king of kings, homeless. He took on poverty, but not just, not just our physical poverty. More than that, he took on our spiritual poverty. Our poverty problem it is far greater as a spiritual problem than it is as a physical problem. And Jesus came in poverty, physical poverty, and suffering, and servantry, and took on our spiritual poverty, our debt, our payment, our sin. And he died on the cross in our place. There's a substitution that goes on here. So you see... Though he was rich, yet for your sake, in your place, he became poor. He took on your poverty, your payment, so that you, by his poverty, death, and suffering, and servantry, you might become rich. Not physically rich, but eternally rich. 
spiritually rich. That you might be adopted. That you might have his inheritance by grace and through faith. I pray you know that grace. I pray you know about that, that substitution, that transaction that can only take place on account of the cross and through faith. I pray that you believe that Jesus died in your place and your sins are forgiven. And we want to help you if not. After the service today, there'll be people up front who are here to counsel you and pray and, and seek someone out. Talk to them today about your soul, about your sin, about Jesus and what he did. But back to this proof language here. You see in verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Giving is proof. Their giving for the Jerusalem saints would be an indication that their hearts have been transformed and that they're those who have God's love in Christ. When we have God's love in our hearts, we want to love what he loves. When we've been given much, we want to give much. When we've been forgiven much, oh, it's so much easier to forgive much. Doesn't 1 John teach us this so well? So repeatedly. Chapter 3, verse 10, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. A chapter later, John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Well, Paul was saying the same thing to the Corinthian church. If you love God, then love his people and show it concretely. Giving is proof. Thirdly, giving is planned. It's planned. The Corinthians originally planned to give as Paul asked them to give in 1 Corinthians 16. But remember, that got put on hold as they had a falling out between Paul and themselves. And, and now, repentant and restored, Paul calls on them to finish what they started. You see, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 11, uh, you started it about a year ago or so, and now finish doing it as well. You see, chapter 9, verse 2, I know your readiness, of which you boast about to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since the last year. Or you skip to verse 5 and you see there the, the readiness, the plannedness of this. I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift. You see, all this assumes that giving is planned and giving is to be prepared it was planned and prepared on Paul's part for coordinating the collection. And it was planned and prepared on the Corinthians' part as they once again readied themselves for Paul or others to come and take up the money they had collected. I wonder if some of us think that planned giving and prepared giving and consistent giving take something of the freeness out of giving but notice verse 5 combines preparation and freeness. They're both in the same verse. 
It's prepared, it's planned. It's also free, freely given. You might think that planned giving, you know, looking at a budget, deciding what you have, what you can give up, what can get pinched, and then sticking to it takes something of the spiritualness out of giving. But isn't that a mystical approach to money and giving? I remember someone in this church telling me once that they come in on Sunday and they sit down and they open their checkbook and they wait for God to tell them what to write in the amount box. And I asked them, have you ever added up what you give in a year and, and compared it with your income, your salary, and, and seen just where you are in a percentage? And he said, no, I should do that. I, I, I know basically what I give per year. never thought of it in terms of percentage. And so anyway, he came back to me. I didn't ask him to, but he came back to me and he said, I figured it out. We give 2.5%. He didn't need to tell me. I didn't want to hear that. But I think he wanted, he wanted me in on that little revelation he had that perhaps he was spiritualizing his giving and perhaps even using that spiritualizing of the giving um, as a way to not figure out how much he's actually giving. Stats on church giving in America are abysmal. They're downright scary. On average, members of Christian churches, members, give 2 to 3% of their income. Only 3% of church members give a tenth of their income. 25% of church members in Christian churches give nothing at all. The average donation made to a church in the U.S. is $17 a week. Giving to churches in 2013 was as low as it's been since the Great Depression. Now, who can estimate how much a lack of planning is owing to those numbers? I don't know, but I'm sure it's part of it. You've got to plan to give. And yet today, in our age, we have to also prepare to give and plan to give in a way that doesn't remove the giving process from the realm of worship, that doesn't remove the giving process from our minds, from our consciousnessness. I added one, didn't I? Consciousness. It is plural, okay. It was right. We live in an age of online giving. Uh, you can give electronically. We, we encourage it. It's, if you can do it worshipfully and thoughtfully and carefully, it's, it's good for consistency. Forget your checkbook one week. You, you often don't give the next week, but online giving can help with consistency. But we're used to that sort of world these days, so we're, we're used to automatic withdrawals. How many bills do you pay with automatic withdrawal, and you never think of them? They're automatically deducted. They just, you don't think about them, and it's easy to do that with your giving. Forget the electronic stuff, just with offering boxes in the back without us passing a plate in front of each other. It's easy to just sort of drop something off like you're dropping keys in a little bucket or dish. We should do it thoughtfully, carefully, worshipfully. Fourthly, giving is provided. Giving is provided, Paul tells us. It's provided by God. Look at chapter 8, verse 12 and following, verses we haven't read yet. He says, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, 
so that their abundance may supply your need, that there might be fairness. Fairness? That sounds Marxist, communist to me. Fairness. Is it just like leveling out? Is that what he's saying here? No, his real point is about God's provision. And here's his logic. He's saying you can't give what you don't have. It's impossible, especially in an age before credit cards. You can't give what you don't have. But where there is abundance, it can be and should be meeting need. It should meet need. And by the way, when he says abundance here, he doesn't mean a pile of cash. He doesn't mean a basement full of gold coins. He doesn't mean money falling from your pockets. He just means extra, beyond basic necessities. What he's really saying here is sometimes giving flows in one direction and sometimes it flows in another direction. Sometimes you get to be the receiver. Sometimes you get to be the giver. But God is the one who gives and God is the one who takes away. And sometimes God gives to us directly and sometimes God provides for us through others. Fairness, you see? Reciprocal giving. Justice, equity. Not justice like payment has to be made or everything has to be evened out. It's just that sometimes it goes in one direction and sometimes it goes in the other but the provision is from God. And Paul looks back to Exodus for an analogy of this. He looks back to manna. He says in verse 15, As it is written, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. When God's people were wandering in the wilderness without food, God miraculously provided manna. It was miracle food, not just because it came from the sky, but it was also miraculous in its proportions. This stuff disappeared every night, so you couldn't stockpile it. God was teaching his people about daily bread and daily trust. But there was enough there for everyone. If you wanted a lot, you got a lot. If you wanted a little per day, you got a little. The point is not how much you got, but that God's provision was Fully adequate for the day. For the day. So Paul's point is not just that our provision is from God. He's saying that. That's the manna illustration. It's not just that we don't all get the same. That's true too. His point is that our giving is provided by God. Our giving, not just our provision, is provided by God. Our giving is provided by God. He provides for us in order that we might give. So chapter 9, verse 11 says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Or as Paul warned those who are rich in 1 Timothy 6, he told Timothy to warn them. He said, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. But he didn't stop there. I wish he did, honestly. Sometimes I wish he did. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. But he said they are to do good. 
He said they are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. You may not feel like you have enough. Whatever you might be able to give might be a widow's might. But your giving is provided for. God has already provided. Are you instead just spending it? Or are you giving it? Giving is also personal. It's personal, kinda. Giving is personal, kinda. Here's what I mean by the personal part, and then we'll come back to the kinda part. You can see throughout this passage how giving is personal. Chapter 9, verse 5, it's to be a willing gift, not an exaction, not a bill. He says in verse 6, whoever sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then verse 7, here's the key. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's explicitly personal. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. You see, in the New Covenant era, we're not given a percentage like there was in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, tithes were, were connected basically to what we would call today taxes, right? Because it's a, it's a, it's a government. It's a nation, not just a priesthood. And, and so you added up the, the taxes and tithes, and you get basically about 23 and a third percent that the average Israelite was to give in the Old Covenant. We don't have anything like those numbers here in the New Covenant. We don't have numbers, but we do have principles. The New Testament tells us that our giving should be sacrificial, that it should be generous, The New Testament tells us that we can't keep all our money. It's not ours anyway. Ephesians 4 tells us that we should work hard in order to share with others. We have principles for giving in the New Testament. And one of those principles is that giving should be done freely and joyfully. And in that sense, it's personal. Each one of us is to decide how much God has given and how much he wants us to give away. Each family will have to decide what is basic need and what is extra for others. You'll have to decide what it's wise to keep, what to store up for the future, and what to give away at a sacrifice. Every Christian should feel a pinch. God allows us to decide how much of a pinch we want, and some will do more or less than others. You shouldn't give reluctantly. You shouldn't give under pressure. You should give freely and joyfully. And yet that principle of freedom should never be used as a license for us to be stingy or for us to be spend-happy. The principle of freedom of giving in the New Testament should never be used as a license to be stingy or to be spend-happy. The principle of freedom here is one that should lean us towards happy giving. You see verse 7, these remarkable words, we're used to them if you're familiar with your Bible at all. 
that God loves a cheerful giver. We're used to those words, but they're crazy. God loves a cheerful giver? Doesn't he love everybody? Doesn't he love every Christian? Oh, apparently there's some sort of like special place in his heart. He loves a little bit more those who give and give cheerfully. Not just those who give. Those who give cheerfully, which means consciously, which means happily, sacrificially. Again, the Macedonians are a perfect example of that. So the personal part of our giving, that giving is personal, doesn't actually get us off the hook of giving. Neither does it get us off the hook of feeling a pinch. Instead, it actually places more on the hook than ever before. God wants you to give generously and sacrificially and freely and joyfully. But from another angle, giving isn't personal. Here's the kind of part. Most of us make money and giving, I think. We make it more personal than we should, or at least maybe more private than we should. This isn't easy, I know. There are Bible verses about not telling people what you give, not announcing it. Right, that's in the Bible. But here's an interesting thought. Men these days are often accountable to one another openly and freely about lust and self-gratification. They talk about it. They compare notes. They confess. They, they repent, weep, and believe again together. But who's ever heard of an accountability group that focuses on finances and giving and shares numbers? I've never heard of that group, and I've never been in one. It would be tough to be in one. But maybe we shouldn't have things like that a little bit more, or at least think about that kind of thing more than we do. Some of us, I think, make giving more personal in the sense that we allow its corporate enterprise, its corporate orientation to be eclipsed. You see, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's all assumed, it's, it's everywhere, that this will be planned giving and coordinated giving and orchestrated giving, even led giving. A need was identified, a call was made, an invitation was put out, a collection was going to be taken up. Paul even says this thing is being administered. Look at verse 18 to 23 here, a big section on this about accountability and administration of their giving. He says, With Titus we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of the great confidence in you. And now a third person for accountability, handling the money. Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. You can trust him. So as for your brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. 
Who would ever think messengers going from church to church carrying funds are the glory of Christ? This guy would. This guy would. Messengers doing accountability with the money, being honest and faithful and getting it to where it goes. The glory of Christ. So you've got accountability, you've got transparency here, but you also have coordination, administration, delegation. In other words, it's all corporate. And of course, Paul's invitation to the Corinthian church is to the church. He doesn't say, put a one ad out on the bulletin board. Individuals who are interested, come along. It's to the church, to the whole, to give. Every mention of giving in the book of Acts or in the New Testament epistles, their giving is a corporate enterprise. Giving is done through a church. It's done together as a church. So when I say giving is personal, I don't mean you need to give to nonprofits more than you do. I don't care which ones, but just give. God just doesn't want you to have so much money. Just give, feel the pinch. It doesn't matter where it goes as long as you get the right off. I don't mean that. I want to encourage you instead to be more consciously corporate and more tethered to your local church if you're a member. I bet many of us operate something like this. We give a little bit to a church a little bit more to its missions. But we also have a missionary friend who's on the field. He wrote us a letter asking for support. We've got to give it to him. Well, actually, we have three of those now. Uh, we've got three missionaries that we support. It's not much, but it's, you know, it's, it's a bit. It's a, it, it pinches. The radio ministry, where there's good preaching and good Christian praise, we give some there. And PBS every year, you know. I love it when they do the Kenny Rogers special and, they always get me. You know. I've been blessed by this Christian website, that other preacher. Give there, give there. Uh, we've got a, a family member, a cousin, who's going on a missions trip soon, college student. We've we got to support him. He sent us a letter. And, uh, adopting a child, that's a huge expense. That's giving. That's ministry giving, kingdom giving. You see, with each new thing added, the church is usually the thing that takes the hit. It takes the cut. So may I suggest that that's an actually fairly individualistic approach to giving. And one not found in the New Testament. And I'm not saying that any of those things are wrong and you shouldn't support them. No, they're all good things. But I am saying that giving to your local church should be primary and consistent. And it should be a consistent centerpiece of your finances. I am saying that as you think of the Lord's Supper as this thing you do with your church, or as you think of fellowship as something you don't solely do with your church, you have fellowship with other Christians and other churches, but, but primarily fellowship is, is lived out and done in a church and through a church and in membership and, and with others. Well, so think about giving in a similar way. Giving is personal. Kinda. It's also very corporate. As I wrap this up, you may be thinking by now I've gone way off topic, that I've forgotten the title of this message called Relieving Suffering. We're not talking about suffering anymore. It sounds more like budgets and, 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 and pays and I mean, checks and, and giving and, and all that sort of stuff. You might be thinking what should have been a sermon on care for the poor 
is now about just giving and giving to the church. But here, let me try to draw up some of these loose strings and pull some of this together. Remember, the suffering of the Jerusalem saints in the first century, yes, was a major deal, a big problem, a real concern, and yes, the the real reason why Paul was writing this, but he was writing giving theology. And his giving theology includes stuff that's more than just for the poor. You see, this wasn't Paul's only heartbeat. It wasn't the only thing that Paul was doing or leading It wasn't just the physical suffering of the poor that had his concern, but even more so, the eternal suffering of the lost. Just go read Philippians 1 once again and remind yourself of the gospel-preaching priority that was at the center of Paul's mission. His mission was not a care for the poor primarily, even though this collection occupied maybe several years of planning and orchestrating. But as Paul's heart and effort, efforts are exposed, you see as much or more so as he cares for the poor, he also cares for the church's spiritual welfare. As we all know in this church even, there are as many if not more spiritual and emotional pains at any given time than there are physical and, and financial ones. But in one sense, what's the point of dividing them? In one sense, what's the point of dividing them? We want to care for them all. We want to care for God's people. We want to do as much as we can. All giving is for need, right? A need. Some small, some great, some eternal, some more temporary. But it's, it's about need, and there are great needs. And those numbers at the bottom of your bulletin represent needs and opportunities. And so when we're over, we don't go... What are we going to get? What are we going to do? Like, you know, like, like the staff don't get big bonuses or something. I hope you never think that. No, these, they're opportunities. And there are always, in a church like this, far more opportunities than there are people or money. So praise the Lord when there's an overage. It, there are needs and there are opportunities there. And yet all of it, the giving... Forget the spending. Forget where it goes. All of our giving should be an act of grace. All of it should be a gospel thing. Giving is what we Christians do because it's what God has done for us. That's Paul's primary point, even if there's a specific project he's pointing them to. The point is Jesus gave his life, and we should give whatever we can to see his life in others. The gospel is in light of, uh, the giving is in light of the gospel. It's out of love for Jesus and for those Jesus loves. It's for the gospel spreading in the world, and it's for the praise and glory of God. And here's the end. The last P, giving is praise. Quickly, giving is praise. We already saw in chapter 8, verse 5, the Macedonians, they gave of themselves to the Lord. Worship, praise in their whole beings. And then look at the last five verses of chapter 9. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Now watch for the praise language, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, it does that, but more, far more. 
It is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see the Jerusalem church, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission. Not just because they got the gift. Because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. That's why they long for you. That's why they pray for you. Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then he ends this chapter with the simple words, the profound words, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Inexpressible gift. He makes up a word here in the Greek language. At least this is the first time it ever appears in any ancient manuscript. Inexpressible. He made up a word for it. It was was wordless. It was incomprehensible. What word do you want to make up to try to communicate that? Well, he did in Greek. What more could he say? Praise God for his inexpressible gift. What more could we say at the end of this chapter than just what he said? Thanks be to God for the inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we believe that your grace and your word is working on transforming our thinking. Oh, we're slow. We are slow. We love this present world far too much. You tell us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. You call us to love each other and to love your ways. And you call us to send the gospel far and wide. You call us to care for each other. We need your help, Lord. We want to do it more than we do. We pray for conviction where we need that, wisdom where we need that, spiritual energy and conviction where we need that. We pray, Lord, for your fruit in our lives. We pray the gospel would transform us in such a way that we love each other, that we love eternity, that we love your church, oh God. We thank you that we've been saved by grace. We marvel at that grace today. It is gift pure gift. Help us in light of it to give, to give much.